Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Jared Rubin. He's Professor of Economics and Co-Director of the Institute for the Study of Religion, Economics and Society at Chapman University. And today, today we're focusing on his book that he wrote together with Dr. Mark Koyama, How the World Became Rich, the Historical Origins of Economic Growth. So, Dr. Rubin, welcome to the show. It's a big pleasure to everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So, I mean, just to contextualize things a little bit and for people to get an idea of what we're talking about here, how rich is the world now compared to any other point in history? Yeah, so so this is actually the, the the book's title, "How the World Became Rich," would make you know I, can be interpreted in many ways. Um, by rich, I don't really mean rich in the way we might think of somebody that's wealthy today, relative mm-hmm. to the rest of society, as being rich. I mean rich relative to nearly all of our ancestors. So a large proportion of people that lived prior to say two hundred fifty, three hundred years ago, lived and relatively close to um, subsistence, uh, you know, unless you were one of the uh, the small fraction of elites in most populations, that would have been less than 10% of the population and many even less than 5%. Uh, you, were, you were always a, a harvest or a bad harvest or two away from utter disaster. You know, we might say that on average, it's something in US dollars between three and $5 a day would have been you know, the, the maximum that mo- most people would have had in most societies. You know, by almost any metric, most parts of the world are rich relative to that. Even places, even countries that we now consider to be middle income, or frankly, even some some countries that are developing are relatively better off. Um, and not not only in terms of what you know we uh, economists might you know kind of amorphously call per capita GDP or something like that. It's a nice metric, but it's only one of many. We can think of a whole host of metrics that are associated more so with quality of life that are much better today, uh, and I think uncontroversially better than than anything most of our ancestors would have had. You know, the, something like uh, life expectancy. For instance, was is, I believe, as of a few years ago, at least the country the lowest life expectancy in the world was in the low 50s, something like 51, 52 years old. Most countries in the world, it's at least 60 years, and for many, it's at least 70, and some it's even 80. This is something that, if you look even say two, three hundred years ago, the wealthiest country in the world with the you know the longest life expectancy was probably England at around 38 years. Um, this had a lot to do with, a, you know, a lot of children dying. Uh, you know, if you made it to 15, you were one of the lucky ones. This is something, you know, so child mortality is way, way, way down. Um, we have, you know, we certainly have advances in medicine and science to thank for this, but this is also a, an outcome of better economic conditions, the better of, you know, sanitation that comes along with it. It's, it's a whole host of things. Um, we know heights are, are people, people are taller now than they used to be, which is in, indicative of better nutrition. You know, these are things that I think that, you know, some of, some of them are quantifiable, some are not. Um, but I think they're kind of incontrovertibly better, you know, in terms of we are, we are a richer society. And by that, I mean, the world society than we've ever been. And, yeah, I think to just to nip something in the bud immediately. 
you know, we're, Mark, my co-author in this book, and I are, of course, very, very aware that not everyone in the contemporary world is rich by any metric, but even by historical standards. You know, there are some countries, for instance, in uh, sub-Saharan Africa that are still around 2 to $3 a day in per capita GDP. That is very, very poor. And, um, you know, part of the reason we wrote this book is precisely because there are, you know, we can learn from history to understand at least how some societies became rich in certain contexts. Mm-hmm. And knowing that, knowing that, knowing what actually mm-hmm. happened is probably our best, our, our, our best key to unlocking riches for uh, the, the remaining, you know, billion plus people. But before we get into how that happened and where that happened, Uh, Could you tell us what exactly is economic growth? Because, I mean, we're talking about economic growth all the time on the news and on social media and all of that. But I'm not completely sure if we understand, we, and by we, I mean people who are not economists, understand what economic growth means exactly and how it is measured. Yeah, so there, there's a few things that, that are in your question here because because it is kind of, of subtle. Um, so measure, you know, we'll, we'll st- we can start with measurement. There's you know several ways that you know we have we, the ideas we have on how to measure this, and none, none of them are perfect, to be clear. Mm-hmm. You know, so we can think of per capita GDP, gross domestic product, as probably the most the, the, certainly the most commonly used metric for uh, the overall, or certainly the overall income of a country. In fact, it's defined as the overall income of a country, um, which you know we can we can think of as you know total income made by individuals in a country plus you know government expenditures and you know, net exports. Um, that is something that is has long been used as within economics as a way to, to think to think about the yeah, at any point in time a country's income, but growth is a little different than that. It's not just a measure of income. One thing that's really important to understand with economic growth and really yeah, and this is important historically as well is that growth is something that's sustained. So it's a sustained increase in something like gross domestic product. It's not just, you know, because plenty of countries can grow one off, you know, even for de- a couple decades at a time. But if that, if that growth reverses, we don't consider that growth. In fact, most of human history, we saw these kind of efflorescences that actually, frankly, could even last up to a century or so. And you might say that that was some short run growth. But in most of these cases, uh, at, whether it be through population growth, uh, pestilence, uh, warfare, uh, these societies would typically eventually fall back to um, at some point to uh, you know, near subsistence-ish wages. So the, the key thing with growth, and again, we'll get into, I'm sure, the many, the many ways that growth might occur, but the key thing is that we see a sustained and persistent increase in, uh, we, we, could, we could call it total, total income, we could call it uh, and certainly not wealth, but yeah, total income, I think, would be a way of, of, of thinking about it. And I, I think one other thing, too, is um, uh, many of the listeners might have heard the concept of economic development. Mm-hmm. Um, that's slightly distinguished from what we're considering to be growth. So development has much more to do with kind of the structure of the co- economy changing, you know, typically away from agri- predominance of agriculture towards more manufacturing or even in the modern day more service sector. Um, these two things are highly associated because typically to get long run economic growth, there needs to be some degree of development happening, but um, they are they are different things. And in the end, it's it's the growth that we care about because it's the growth that 
can lead to a, an improvement in the quality of life for um, most people. Mm -hmm. So in trying to understand how sustained economic growth happened and happens, there are many different people that put different hypotheses on the table and talk about many different factors. For example, in the book, you go through geography, politics, institutions, markets and states, culture, human capital, demography and colonization, for mm -hmm. example. So starting with geography. What do people that talk about geography argue exactly? Yeah, so there's there's several um, different types of geographical hypotheses. Uh, probably the most famous one is Jared Diamond's one, the one they put forth in Guns, Germs, and Steel, which had been based on, you know, there was a previous literature that argued similar things. Um, so he argued for a few things that are, you know, we would certainly think of as geography-based, for instance, um, the, the way that uh, the continents, for instance, are uh, formulated, whether they're kind of more north-south, as the Americas are, and sub-Saharan Africa is, or east-west, more so as Eurasia is. Uh, so, you know, his idea is that east-west, the continents that are east-west, because they're on similar latitudes, you know, ideas can travel quicker, uh, grains, livestock, because there is similar climates, um, you get much more spread throughout these areas, whereas, you know, so the idea of something traveling from, say, North America to South America in a pre-industrial world, would you'd have to go through a series of different climates, you know, from you know, mountainous to tropical to, you know, back to mountainous, um, that you, you are much less likely to see spread. And, and you know, the, the, it's not just spread of, again, it's not just spread of ideas, even though that matters, it's or the spread of even human populations. Probably more importantly, it's the spread of domesticable animals and grains. And, you know, this is one idea that he also puts forth, you know, associated with this is you see a lot more of the, you know, the big domesticated animals are in Eurasia, not in other parts of the world. This helped lead to early societies growing and thus, you know, Eurasia being the place where you were more likely to see economic development. Um, I, and, you know, I think you should just preface everything by saying, you know, one thing that the book does is, you know, it does put forward these arguments and just sit, you know, kind of explain what they are, the first half does. And then it tries to bring them together, you know, especially the ones that we think have a little more explanatory power and think about how they interact with each other. There are other geographic uh, arguments, so things like climate, um, thing, whether that be temperature or, you know, really disease climate is, has been a big one, particularly for trying to explain at least partially explain the relative backwardness, economic backwardness of sub-Saharan Africa. You have, you know, this giant malaria belt, yellow fever that does make work conditions hard. It makes it makes trade much. Uh, it, it makes it much more much harder to trade, especially with outsiders who might not have built up as much immunity to these diseases as others. Um, then there's, <clears throat> excuse me, concepts of ruggedness would be another thing, you know, how rugged the terrain is. So, yeah, kind of mountainous, um, you know, that has a, a couple couple uh, consequences. You know, rugged terrain is typically harder to farm. So those places that are in rugged terrain, you know, might have had, and in fact, it has been shown, have had historically lower population densities. Um, perhaps more importantly for economic development, it's also harder to trade because overland trade with places that are mountainous is just harder to get to and bring goods of high value to. Um, so that would be kind of the flavor, you know, there's other things as well, like soil quality, access to, to, to rivers and sea, you know, there's some famous theses that, you know, the fact that England was an island helped protect it. There's access to coal when we talk, if we, when we get to the industrial revolution that 
you know, we say was was certainly, you know, it was a necessary condition for England, at least to industrialize the way it did. It's unclear that it explains everything, as I'm sure we will get to. But, um, you know, these are things that are, um, you know, so so one, I guess one last thing about geography based explanations is that on the one hand, they are satisfying because there's nothing else that might be explaining geography and for the most part. You know, it's not, you know, with the exception of things like climate change, things like this, you know, most of the geography is just there. So it kind of, you know, it's not like something like culture or something like institutions, which have their own causes. Geography is just kind of there. So we can say, all right, this is, you know, to use the lingo of economics, it's exogenous. It's, you know, it's from the outside. The, the downside, as I'm sure we'll discuss, of explanations that purely rely on geography is they have a really hard time explaining reversal of fortunes, which is what we have certainly seen. So Northwestern Europe, we know, for instance, is where the first modern economy took off. It was one of the poorest parts of Eurasia a thousand years ago. Um, so, you know, this is something that it's really hard to account for both those facts by just the geography of the two places. Um, but, you know, as I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, geography does interact with other features, which, you know, does leave some room for geography to play a role in why certain parts of the world became rich earlier than others and why others have um, since uh, since followed in their footsteps. And the fact that you just mentioned that geography can interact with other features, let me ask you this. So where would you place in terms of the several different explanations people put out there, where would you place technology? Do you think it is part no. of geography-based explanations or, for example, culture-based explanations? Yeah, I think it's, it's certainly, I, my, my take would be it's not a geography-based explanation. I, don't, I think there's very few geo geographic features that make most types of technological progress likely to happen in one area versus another. Um, I think technology has much more to do with the society's institutions. So a society, you know, a society's institutions help form incentives um, of, for everything, for you know, all types of actions, including the uh, incentive to innovate, but also to adopt technologies. You know, so both those things are incredibly important. Um, there have been some recent theories, that's particularly on Britain's industrialization, that, play, that, were, that claim that culture played a role, especially enlightenment culture. And I think that that those theories are somewhat convincing. Again, you know, one thing that I think might already be coming clear is that we don't think there's one answer. There's no one silver bullet. A lot of, you know, a lot of the big questions have many, many answers. Um, but I think your question is very appropriate. We, I mean, just because there's many answers doesn't mean we just throw up our hands and say, uh, we know nothing. We can actually classify some of these answers and say, well, what might have more weight and in terms of innovation or, you know, technological change yeah, geography doesn't play much of a role. I don't think, you know, so demography is another thing that we have a whole chapter on, you know, births and deaths. And, you know, because demography played an incredibly important role in the pre-industrial economy because, you know, it, it dictated essentially, you know, as people, as people had some ex excess income, they just had more children. Those children would eat up the excess income. But I bring this up here to say, I don't think that that, that had a huge role in, in technological development either. It, only except for the except to the extent that we should think of uh, technological development as being a bit random, as being you know especially new major inventions, um, and it sometimes requires a stroke of genius. Um, so the bigger the population you have, and this there's a fairly large literature on this, it just suggests you know the more people you have that are able to to 
to devote their mental resources to things like innovation, you know, meaning they're not, you know, looking for food, you know, they're not just on the farm working all day, the more likely it is that you will have innovation in a society. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, and that's something that is much more, it, it's on the part, it's partly demographic. It's also partly, again, institutional because it, it, it follows from growth. Um, yeah, so I think, you know, to back to the original question, I, you know, one thing we will talk about, I'm sure, is innovation and technological change. It's among the most important reasons for the rise of the modern economy. I don't think that, at least in a direct way, geography played a big role, uh, maybe indirectly through its effect on some things like institutions. So. so you mentioned the institutions there. What are some of the ones that people tend to focus on yep. the most when trying to explain economic growth? Very good. Yeah. So I mean, you know, so when we talk institutions more broadly, we, I mean, a lot of things, I mean, religious institutions, political, legal, even social institutions. Um, one of the biggest ones that there's a very large literature on in both economics and political science is, is political institutions. So, you know, something like constraints on executive power, you know, re re reducing the level of autocracy in a society, you know, having more buy-in from a larger portion of the population because they have some say in governance ends up mattering more so, I would say more so for the, not necessarily for spurring on economic growth, but for not stopping it, if that makes sense. So a place like China, for instance, you know, was more or less since the fall of the Roman Empire in the fifth century for the next thousand years, probably the leading uh, area in Eurasia in terms, maybe with the exception of parts of the Middle East after the spread of Islam, um, in terms of, you know, technological development, probably per capita GDP, even though everyone was kind of poor in this time, you know, and even culturally, when we think of stuff like architecture and things like that. Um, but in the, in the case of China, you had, you know, kind of persistently autocratic institutions, you know, very centralized government with very few checks on executive power, especially relative to what would happen in parts of Europe much later in, say, the you know, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. Um, and, you know, we view that, and I certainly do, you know, I think I can speak for Mark on this one, too. I think he would agree that, that this was less so a reason why, you know, why Northwestern Europe pulled ahead, but it was definitely a reason, one of the reasons why China didn't, if that may, if that makes sense. Because, you know, what, what, what autocratic power can do is can be arbitrary. You know, rights are not always necessarily secure, even if a, a, an autocrat claims that they're going to protect rights, they can renege at any point. And even if they're, for some reason, you know, perfectly honest, their successor might not be. Things like this certainly decrease incentive to invest. They decrease incentive to innovate um, on many margins. Um, so that that would be among the most important institutions. Certainly bundled with political institutions or legal institutions, um, those that you know help you know punish those that and, and adjudicate um, what you know things when things go wrong. Um, having those types of institutions be relatively unbiased and relatively open to everyone in a in a consistent way so you know the elites don't don't get preferential treatment as more or less has been the case through in most societies and most most of for most of humanity at least since uh, we settled down into the two communities mm -hmm. um, these are the types of things that encourage greater economic interaction um, because you know that if you get cheated you're going to 
know, the person will get punished. Um, if you, if you think that the person can get away completely free, um, after cheating you, you're less like much, much, much less likely to engage with them. Um, so those would be the big ones. There's been some work, including stuff that both I and Mark have done um, independently that have suggested that religious institutions can also have and have, at least in my own work in you know, terms of, say, medieval Europe and medieval Middle East, um, can play a dampening role on economic development. There's some indications that you know, in other contexts it might play a positive role as well. But these, I would say that these are the biggest uh, institutional features. And they're also ones that, you know, just you know, to kind of preview what we, what we argue later in the book, institutions are among, we, we view as among the most important factors in uh, why certain parts of the world became rich, but also I think even more importantly, why certain parts of the world were then able to, to catch up and other parts have not been. Mm -hmm. And what about culture? What are some of the aspects of culture that people people usually reference, and what are the ones you think could play the biggest role? Great. Yeah. So I mean, it certainly matters the question we're asking here in terms of is it if it's technological change, uh, for instance. So um, the economic historian Joel Moyer, who you know, for my money, uh, is maybe the best out there right now. Um, wrote a book a few years ago arguing that the the uh, the British the British Industrial Revolution was in part due to this kind of pan-European cultural change that came along with the Enlightenment that really kind of changed the way people did science and the way they viewed science. So you know this idea that science could be something that led to the progress of mankind that actually had. And then this trickled, according to Moikir, trickled down to, say, artisans, which were in abundance in England or Britain at the time. And this idea then that, you know, technological change was something that could happen and could regularly happen. And it was something that was fundamentally new to the, you know, to uh, humanity, really. And I do, and I, and I think there's a good case to be made there that this is something that came about at least beginning in elite circles during the Enlightenment that then did spread to the rest of society and having this type of mindset, you know, so when we talk about culture and actually I think it's, it's worth, it's worth prefacing this um, as we do in the book by saying, you know, there, there are very nasty cultural theories as well in the, in the early uh, 20th century. Um, there were several, uh, you know, the, the major theories I would say were highly Eurocentric in terms of, you know, there's just something about European culture that is not say in Chinese culture or South Asian culture. And that's why Europe is, is richer. And that's why Europe has this giant, or various European countries have this giant colonial enterprise. Um, and these, you know, I think Eurocentric is probably the, the most generous way of describing them. Many were just flat out racist. Mm -hmm. um, and that is not what we're talking about when we're talking about cultural explanations. You know, so there's been a resurgence in research in culture, I think really led by cultural anthropologists in the last few decades, really going back to the 80s with the work of Boyd and Richardson. And what they mean by culture is, you know, we think about it as the lens through which people view the world, how they take inputs from the outside world and in, in their mind, uh, make them into, out, into outputs, into to thinking through the way the world works. And, the, and we call this culture because it's it's typically something that is societal. It's not something that one just gets on their own. It's something that societies typically have shared shared views on how the world works. And when we think about how you know, a, a group that has 
a shared class of mental models, we would consider that a culture. And, you know, I think when we think about it this way, we can see why culture could could matter for economic development. If if how you see the world is and see the same the same phenomena in the world is very different from the way I see it, at least, you know, how how a causes B, then we would expect, you know, you and me, but also more more importantly, our cultures to have very different ways of viewing the world, it's probably going to bleed into very different types of institutions, whether they be political, economic, legal, things like this, and which also may cause cultural differences, which is, as you might already be able to tell, this is where some of these um, arguments can get a little messy in terms of figuring out what causes what. But that's what we mean by culture. And I think, you know, so when we think about, you know, back to your original question on what type of culture matters, certainly attitudes toward technological change, attitudes towards progress, those things matter. So I already mentioned religion. Um, briefly, uh, religion is the type of thing that I think matters and can matter in many ways. Religion, I would, I would argue, you know, is certainly part of culture, the society's uh, certainly, if a society has a predominant religion, it's you know it's part of its culture. And the main way that that religion matters, at least in and this is where I think one of these um, interactions can really help explain, is not so much in doctrine itself. It's not so much that most religions, whether you know even the big religions, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, most of them aren't necessarily anti-economic. Um, most of them aren't pro-economic either. They're just they're they're just kind of their guides on how to live, you know, what, what is viewed as a moral life, it's like this. Um, but one thing that does come about uh, and has come about in most societies where religion is important is that religion ends up playing a big role in politics, you know, mm -hmm. because, because religion is very useful for political authorities as a way of you know, gaining legitimacy, you know, getting people to pay taxes, you know, you know and some degree of control. And when religion plays a role in politics, that means that other groups don't play a role, have a have a weaker role in politics, especially those with economic interests. And this has been this is something that I've pushed and others have kind of had similar ideas on that, that this is one of those ways that culture and in this case, specifically religion can play a role in economic development. Again, not so much through the um, the cultural norms or the religious doctrine itself, but the way that it affects the the, the society's political and economic institutions. Mm -hmm. uh, so you mentioned something there that I would like to get more into. I had sure. this question saved for a bit later before <laughs> we got into uh, colonization hypotheses and explanations. Uh, but at a certain point there, when talking about culture, you mentioned, for example, particularly in the early 20th century, how people came up with uh, cultural superiority explanations, some of them associated with race. And uh, I mean, yeah. as far as I know, when people claim that there might be some, uh, uh, there are aspects of culture that might be innate to specific races. I mean, I've talked with anthropologists and other people on the show, and as, as far as I'm aware, yeah. that's just nonsense. So, yeah. but uh, anyway, <laughs> to ask you a sort of different question, but also related to that. Um, th uh, is there any explanation of economic growth that has to do with racial or ethnic homogeneity that has any support whatsoever? Yes. Um, so typically, so a big finding of, you know, that, that's, that's been shown in several contexts is that it, it's kind of the other, I guess it's kind of the other way. So ethnic fractionalization 
is typically negative related, negatively related to economic growth, both across countries and within countries. Mm -hmm. And the idea there being that uh, ethnically fraction or fractionalized societies, you know, all that, that, that's just a kind of a term for how, you know, how, how distinct different ethnic groups are within one state. Those societies are typically a little harder to, to, to run politically uh, because you have different groups with vastly different interests in some cases. Um, and yeah, this is just the idea put forth in the literature. This is not something I or Mark have really done any any work on, but th there is there is some support for that, that this is the case. And typically the mechanism that's proposed is that it, is politics becomes more contentious, let's get, less gets done. Um, and you also have the capacity, uh, there's some good work done on in Sub-Saharan Africa because you know, after the after the scramble for Africa in the late 19th century, you get these different ethnic groups that are placed that have historically been rivals. You know, maybe even enslaved each other um, back in the uh, the, the sl slavery period that are now in the same country, and you know they would have never been part of the same governance before, and they typically have animosity towards each other. And there's been uh, some very good studies, uh, one by Michalopoulos and Papuanu that suggested that you have that in those places where you have different ethnic groups um, in the same in the same country, but also when you have overlapping groups across countries, you get a lot more civil wars, you get a lot more domestic uh, violence by domestic violence. I mean, you know, between ethnic groups within the same country, mm -hmm. um, you even get more cross country wars by uh, by groups that have ethnic groups um, in, in two different countries, you know, one might be protecting the other one, say, if they're the mi majority in one and the minority in the other, things like this. So there are there there is some there is some evidence that at least it um, fractionalization is can hamper economic growth. Um, just quickly to pre to preview what we'll say here is, I mean, I think it's very hard to then make that claim that that's why I say Britain took off. Um, you know, China was also pretty ethnically homogenous and did not. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, th there is some evidence. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, what about uh, explanations that focus on demographics? So what tend to be the factors that people bring to the table? So demographic explanations, you know, the, by far the most famous one is, is a very old one of Thomas Malthus, who in 1798 pr proposed this theory, which actually did a pretty decent job at explaining much of humankind, um, to human uh, economic uh, systems prior to when he was writing. Ironically, he was writing in Britain during the Industrial Revolution with the, you know, the thing that would eventually, even though, but even to be clear, you know, Britain's Industrial Revolution begins in the late 18th century. The economic takeoff, especially in terms of per capita GDP and wages, doesn't really happen until the 19th century. But what his explanation was, and you know, it's, it's if you've taken, you know, hopefully if you've taken an economics class, or certainly if you've taken an economic history class, or this is something you might be somewhat familiar with. Um, it's known as the Malthusian theory that mm -hmm. you know, as a society that, you know, society's ba base level is near subsistence. You know, you can't really go below subsistence or people stop, start dying. Uh, but uh, if you have some type of some type of say shock, some type of outside event, whether it be technological change, it might be a warfare, it might be an, an epidemic. So an epidemic that kills off a lot of people. You know, the survivors actually, for at least some some period in the, after the Black Death, it was over a century, typically have higher incomes um, because you know you have a major shock to labor supply. Over time, what happens is even when you get these these increases in income, people end up having more children. 
Um, and as you have more children, the, um, they, they end up, you know, starting to eat into that surplus and people only really stop when you have, um, per capita incomes back to close to subsistence. So the, the idea, according to these theories, is that through much of human history, you would get, you know, when you got technological growth, what it would end up in in the long run would be greater population density, but not greater, greater overall income per capita. And this is actually goes back to your very first question, you know, what are one of the first questions, what is growth? Mm-hmm. The, the difference between what we're talking about here and growth is growth, remember, growth is sustained. So the, the idea behind the Malthusian thesis theory, and this was, again, was true relative, prior to say 1800 or so, is that no economy really grew fast enough and continued that, continued that in a sustained way to overcome these demographic features. And you can say there's still plenty of countries in, you know, at least the, the poorest countries in the world today still exhibit Malthusian dynamics. And, you know, I think we're even to some degree, even though, you know, parts, many parts of sub-Saharan Africa are now at least away from the, the very margins of subsistence. You know, over the next, say, 50 years, we're going to see massive population growth by every estimate I've seen in this region, which is somewhat consistent with you know, at least the beginnings of Malthusian uh, growth. And it's only when, you know, then you, you start to see, you know, so a big explanation uh, to, you know, kind of fully answer your question and the, the role that demography can play in long run growth is what is known as a demographic transition. So this is what, you know, much of the, the wealthy, uh, really all of the wealthy world has gone through today, where instead of averaging six, seven children per, per, uh, per really per woman, you know, families, you know, women typically now only have two to three children at most and say on parts of you know, Western Europe, you know, you're in Portugal, you would, yeah, it's very much happening on the Iberian Peninsula for sure. You know, it's, it's actually much less than that where, you know, we're actually below replacement, you know, a place like Japan as well has been well below replacement mm-hmm. for, for decades now. Um, so this is something that the idea is that it's once you get this transition away, you know, towards much lower birth rates, you know, it ends up being much lower birth rates and much lower death rates as well. So as you, as you do this, you know, the, the, you, people end up typically end up living longer lives as well. Um, that's when you can really start to see growth because you no longer have these population pressures pushing down on, on income whenever you get some type of uh, event that allows for per capita income to grow. Um, so I think that, you know, much like some of the other stuff we've been saying, I think it's very clear that this type of demographic change is necessary for long run per capita income, really to, to really affect to affect most of society. Again, you know, historically, elites have always been wealthy. I mean, you know, I, as I've been describing, I said, you know, it's only been the last few hundred years where we get away from some, you know, some closest subsistence. Of course, you know, back in the medieval period, Roman period, even before you know, the very small portion of the population uh, was able to extract most of the rents of society and, you know, by the standards of the day and the technology of the day lived nicely. On the other hand, to get the, you know, what I think what most of us will actually care about is getting getting that wealth that's created to the rest of the population. Having some degree of demographic change does, has been shown to, to, to matter. And again, it's it's it, it really can't be the, the whole the whole thing explaining why certain parts of Europe took off. Um, in fact, because it's, you know, it was actually France where that, that had its demographic transition before anywhere else. And France was certainly not the place where economic uh, growth first took off. But it's also hard to imagine a place like Britain uh, growing as it did without having some degree of uh, de- decline in birth rates. 
So, getting into colonization then, um, did colonization really have a big impact on the economic growth of the colonizer countries? So, this is a, this is a very good question. It's very contentious. Um, yeah. And I don't think we have, I, I would say, I mean, Mark and I have our own read on the literature. I would say of all of, so let's say that Mark and I end up writing a second edition of this in 10 years. I think this is the question that we would be by far the most willing. I mean, well, we're willing to entertain any evidence that's contrary to anything in the book if it comes out. But I think this is the one that where we might see evident, much more evidence one way or the other. And uh, obviously I, I'm, I'm happy to go with whatever the way the evidence takes us um, mm -hmm. because this is, this is something where, you know, so within you know, within his, his, the discipline of history, so not just purely economic history, there's a, a whole new literature known as the, the um, history of capitalism that makes this claim that colonization really did play a role in the early, you know, what, well, what they call the early capitalism, but really, you know, Britain's takeoff, mm -hmm. whether that be through, um, especially through the North American, actually, mainly the North American colonies, and actually even more so those in the Caribbean, um, you know, that, where you have sugar coming in, where, you know, you, you eventually in, 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 you know, the southern U.S., you have the, 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 sl the slave um, plantation right. economy that where that was producing all the cotton that ended up being so important for the British textile mills. Yeah. And, you know, of course, slavery plays a gigantic role in this um, in this this whole process. Um, there's been a lot of other research done suggesting that while I mean, clearly, uh, you know, and, and I should also preface this by saying no one in this literature is, or actually, I shouldn't even say that. Almost everyone in this literature is not claiming that, you know, colonization was, was good for the, you know, most, uh, you know, most people and, and certainly, you know, the enslaved. There are a few, and to be clear, mm -hmm. I, they are outliers that, that think that, you know, especially British colonization brought civilization to part, different parts of the world. Those are the types of explanations that fall much more in line with those explanations I noted at the beginning that uh, that are more you know early twentieth century in their mindset. Um, so uh, we don't even need to talk about those when we don't talk about those in the book because you know that's a very intentional omission because um, we mm -hmm. think that those are silly. The um, the work done by historians of capitalism though are are you know are are much are. are much more in a sense, I would say, not just thoroughly researched, but, you know, there is a cogent argument there. Um, and there's also plenty of uh, counter arguments that say, look, if you look at how Britain industrialized, uh, you know, much of the financing did not come from, say, uh, the, the colonies. It came from London and, and, and uh, enterprises that were based in different types of trade. Um, so, I think that in terms of the the role that colonization played on the way that Britain industrialized, and especially when we think about, well, why did Britain industrialize? It was mainly technology. The links are relatively weak, even though they are there. And again, I think that this is something that over the next, say, 10, 15 years, we're going to get a lot better understanding of just how important those links are. In fact, there's been a couple papers that have come out in the last year you know, since we wrote this book that have made somewhat convincing arguments, and this, these are by economics and econo or economists and economic historians, that that we can see some direct you know, causal links between mm -hmm. certain aspects of colonial enterprise and you know, particularly um, uh, products of uh, slave plantations and what was going on even in uh, British uh, textile manufacturing. 
you know, one thing that we do in the book, though, and I know this isn't exactly your question, but I do think it's important is to say, look, even if um, colonization might have played, you know, it, it's played a most disputable role in Britain's industrialization and even then in the spread of industrialization, you know, in the, the 19th century and other parts of Western Europe, eventually in East Asia. One thing we can that the literature is much less, uh, it's, I'd say much less controversial is that it has played a really dampening role on the, those that were colonized in terms of catching up. Now, most of the places that were colonized by the time you get to say the 17th or 18th century, were probably not going to be the places where a big economic takeoff would have happened. You know, by that point, you know, Northwestern Europe is not looking like a terrible candidate for a huge economic takeoff. That said, in really what's much more important in terms of the, the spread of growth worldwide, there's been plenty of evidence that's really has come out in the last 20 years um, looking at the formerly colonized world that various aspects of colonization really dampened uh, growth even after, even after uh, uh, independence. You know, whether it be via the institutions that colonists implanted, it might be through cultural change and, you know, and something like, um, for instance, slavery has really been shown to have affected uh, culture in sub-Saharan Africa, you know, especially things like trust and trust of others, which we think of as incredibly important uh, for economic development to happen. So I think you know, on that margin, the literature is less, uh, it's less controversial, it's a much less controversial statement to say that there was a the 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 catch up in in many in many though obviously not all parts of the formerly colonized world has been much slower. I mean, obviously, I'm I'm speaking to you from the United States, um, you know, one of the wealthiest countries in the world that was you know a former colony. So there are there is significant differences in uh, in the formerly you know colonized world, which to be clear is most of the most of the landmass in the entire world. Um, but in those places that remain poor, um, we do see some colonial legacy there for sure. Mm -hmm. So the question I'm about to ask you now, you've already touched a little bit on it in this previous question, but I think it's very important to address it because, uh, I mean, this is extremely contentious and particularly because many yeah. people who debate it uh, come from a place where they are very politically motivated and so... Yeah. I mean, but when it comes to the impact that colonization had on the colonized countries, I mean, because there are people that claim that, that because European countries particularly introduced some institutions like political and legal institutions, some technology, some cultural practices, etc., into the what are now the countries they colonize that uh, even though there was slavery and exploitation of all kinds, uh, in the end, they ended up contributing somewhat to the economic growth and development of these countries. But is that really clear or not? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't think it's clear. You know, I think it, it goes case by case. I mean, okay. really, you know, what, what many of what many of these. So I think. Okay, so I think in terms of you know, the 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 degree to which that that past that that specific colonial past uh, contributed to the economic growth of the countries, you know, there's been some famous studies, some of which have since been um, 
looked at as maybe, you know, maybe not exaggerating claims, but um, certainly, you know, looking at from different angles has not always been shown to be completely uh, robust is, you know, the, the different types of institutions that get implanted afterwards. I mean, I, I do, there's, there, there in many contexts have been shown to say, like, if you have the types of institutions that are highly extractive, those that were put in there in order to either, you know, take gold and silver, you know, which was a big thing in, say, uh, South American colonies, particularly the Spanish ones, um, or, you know, to extract things like sugarcane, um, which might have taken a certain type of labor, particularly um, really strenuous labor. Those types of institutions, like the type of institutions you need for those, consolidate power in a small group of people. And it really requires coercive power much more so than say places where you have settled groups that might try to bring with them some type of, you know, representative institutions. Um, and it really requires also course of power over locals, you know, the, the, the natives that had, had been there previously. Now, one thing that I do think, you know, has been, has certainly been shown in, in some contexts at least is that those types of institutions are very, attractive to those people that are in power even after after independence you know you have people lo locals that have gained power through these institutions they're the most likely to then be able to after independence kind of move move institutions move politics in their favor and yeah they they become the elites based on this and and typically we think of those types of extractive institutions not surprisingly as not being great for growth so I do think there are margins. And again, it, it does very much matter the context you're talking about. And really, that's, I think, one of the themes of the book is that, you know, there's no silver bullets. And, I, you know, it's a, a comment I've already said, and we say it a few times in the book, you know, what we, we do have to be very kind of aware of the kind of the certain cultural and institutional uh, context in which we're talking about. And in some cases, you might see certain legacies mattering and in some cases not. Um, but again, I think this is one where we do see it mattering in many different contexts. Mm -hmm. So having gone through all of these kinds of explanations, what yeah. do you think is the best way of thinking about them? I'm, I mean, uh, as mm -hmm. causes or explanations, looking at different factors like demographics, culture, institutions, yeah. and so on. So um, how should we think about them? How to combine them together, perhaps, in yeah. particular contexts? Yeah, no, th and this is really one of the reasons we wrote this book. So maybe I just I'll give you a couple seconds of background. You know, when we started talking about this book, I think maybe 2015 or 16, you know, we on the one hand noted that, you know, we both teach this type of stuff in our classes. There was no book out there that really went over, you know, that gave a, a broad synthesis of this rapidly growing literature. On the other hand, you know, and that would that would be more kind of from a textbook perspective. But one thing we wanted, we wanted to make a positive contribution as well, not just kind of overview everything out there. And really one thing that academic publishing incentivizes, and I'm not, I certainly don't blame the authors of these, of these many works who I've, you know, learned much from, but they, they really incentivize making one strong claim. And in, in doing so, whether it be in articles or books, you don't get as much of the interaction between claims. You think, all right, well, in a big question, like how, how did the world become rich? We know that's not monocausal. And we know that there's many factors, some of which interact with each other, some of which work separately in 
in tandem with each other, some of which are only important in some contexts and not the others, that matter. And one thing we try to do in this book to get at your question is to think about how some of these different features, whether they begin to be institutions, culture, demography, et cetera, interact with each other to, to, to really kind of increase the, the power of the explanation that we have in mind. So, you know, we, we do think, for instance, you know, you brought up geography as one of the first, you know, it was one of the first questions you asked me. And I, I say, you know, well, a downside of geographic explanations is they don't really explain reversals well. Well, one thing that ge geography does, we know, play an important role in is it does help shape the types of institutions that a society has. You know, so a trivial one that we mentioned in the book, for instance, is, you know, you're not you're not likely to have a corpus of maritime law in a landlocked country. That's obvious. It doesn't really matter. But it just gives you an example of why different countries might have very different different types of institutions. And right. this is something that when we think about even something like ruggedness or, you know, access to trade things like this, you know, whether, and, you know, a country or a country like Britain, which was, you know, it's an island and thus had very, you know, a, a very different historical past that was in part due to its geography, you end up getting different types of, on the, on, on the highest level laws. But I think undergirding this is you, it can bleed into just the types of institutions you have. So, you know, for instance, a place like China, you know, there's an argument made, in fact, you know, uh, Mark, my, the co-author in this book, has, has contributed uh, significantly to this literature that looks at, well, you know, in China, you have a threat coming from one direction. Um, and this really increases, you know, this is very much a geographic argument because it's the steppe. It's this giant, you know, this giant expanse that, you know, the Mongols and many other different steppe, steppe groups, uh, you know, uh, inhabited, you know, more or less from almost the Pacific Ocean all the way to Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. And his argument, and made with co-authors and has been similarly made by others, is that this this led to centralization in China because you had to have this kind of centralized power, especially based in the north, that could that could push off this threat. Whereas, you know, in Europe you have threats coming from all angles, especially after the fall of the Roman Empire. You know, you have Vikings coming from the north, you know, you have Magyars and and Muslims coming from the southeast and south, and you end up getting several different states because of it. This is something. This is very much now we're getting into the realm of institutions. You know how politics is organized, how politics are organized, how different groups might have different types of power. You know, one we can also say something I mentioned before, where you know because of this in China, you might get more tendency towards autocracy because of this. And again, so this would be an idea that all right. It's the politics that ends up mattering for economic development, but we can see some of the roots of the politics and the types of political institutions a society has, and probably more importantly, why different societies have different institutional setups. In some cases, geography plays a role in this. So I think that would be, that, I think that's you know a crystal clear example, at least in my mind, of the way that these various factors can interact with each other. You know, I would also say that, you know, and our, I think our biggest takeaway from the book is that institutions and culture really strongly interact with each other. Um, you know, so for instance, in a, you know, in a, in a society that where, you know, you have cultural norms that, that put, put people that do labor in kind of the lowest of classes, you know, the ideal, the ideal cult, you know, according, and, and this was say true in the Roman empire, you know, the ideal was once you became rich, you, you'd go retire and live in a villa and live a life of luxury rather than, you know, hard work being something that was viewed as a, as a positive. 
you know, this then we, we say, all right, well, that's certainly a cultural norm that might matter. And there's been a few um, uh, economic historians that suggest that this is among the more important cultural norms that matters. But this is also then ends up, you know, being both affecting and affected by society's institutions, uh, you know, whether it be the type of, you know, financing that can occur that that is necessary for funding innovation or just, uh, you know, the, the types of, um, in, you know, incentive structures more generally that, that encourage innovation. These are all interwoven, I think, in, in really important ways. And I'd say probably the, the, maybe the most important takeaway from our book, and it's certainly one of them, is that if you, if you consider either the institutions or the culture, you know, for the sake of this example, in isolation, you don't really get the full story. Once you do, once you consider these factors and then you, you know, you apply it to the specific historical settings, um, then that, then you start to understand, I think, a little better why some societies were able to take off, why others maybe have been stagnating. I think you know, one final example on this that that might be a little little clearer to the, uh, the listener. And, you know, it, it became clear to me um, in living through it in say the, you know, the early 2000s, you had, you know, a failure of spread of democracy, you know, the, the US and allies tried to, you know, more or less spread democracy by force. You also see this, you know, very similar thing happening after the fall of the Soviet Union, in terms of transitioning to capitalism, it really, it, it succeeded in some parts of that were behind the Iron Curtain, and failed miserably in other parts, you know, even in Russia, where, you know, it ended up just being leading to cronyism and eventually you know, the rise of a strong man. Um, and you see that in the, the Central Asian states as well. This is something where I think, you know, we really see an interaction between institutions and culture, you know, going back to, you know, the failure of, you know, spread of democracy. Democracy is not just a set of institutions. It's not just we have, you know, we, we have rules for how voting happens and, you know, the, the, the winner of an election, whether it be a parliamentary or presidential system, wins. you know, those, those institutions matter, you know, for, for sure. And how, and how democracy plays out and, and how the rules of society are kind of both created and then either persist or not. Yeah. But, you know, things like democratic norms matter, right? That, that, that there's a widespread belief that the election is fair and free and that, and that, the, that votes count and matter. These are things that, you know, especially in places like the former Soviet Union or, you know, in a place like Saddam's Iraq, that those norms had been so, cr anything like those norms had been so crushed by the previous regimes that they don't exist. And when they don't exist, all those institutions don't matter in a sense. They're, they're not going to work the way that they work in other parts of the world. So that's kind of what we mean. You know, I think that, that hopefully that's a clearer example of how a society's culture can affect the way that institutions work. And, and also why, again, you know, to use that term, there's no silver bullet. It's not like we can say, all right, well, if you just have democracy, you're going to, you're going to grow. No, that's not the case. In fact, democracy is not even going to work the way it works in, you know, say the U.S. or Portugal or, you know, other other parts of the world um, in, in some in certain societies with certain with different different cultural norms. Mm -hmm. So I have two or three more topics I would like to go sure. through. And since we've already explored all explored all of the different explanations that people usually bring to the table, let's apply all of that to try to understand how sustain, sustained economic growth was possible in Northwestern right. Europe, particularly, okay. and also the British how the British Industrial Revolution happened. Yeah. So. 
Sure. Uh, what are the preconditions you think are were the most important here? Yeah, it's great. So, so I think you know it's relatively uncontroversial to say that you know economic growth first took off in Northwestern Europe. Um, you know, certainly industrialization ha at a massive scale happened first in Britain. Well, I you know I use the term Northwestern Europe because you know the, the Dutch the Dutch Republic really did have. A fluorescence beginning in the late 16th century that you know where this very small country both in terms of geography and population for about 100 150 years was the richest country in the world um you know it was it was there it was you know trade was really important but you know politics ended up being an important driver of this you know it, it had it didn't really have a king especially once it threw off um spanish rule it you know was was kind of ruled mainly by by the economic elites and their parliaments And because of this, you start to see in the, especially in the you know, the late 15, late 16th and 17th centuries, in the in the Dutch case, you see a host of, of policies that really do improve economic growth. Things like you know, really strong protection of property rights, investments in massive public good projects, like you know, so you know, more or less a third of the country is underwater. This is a period where a lot of that land is reclaimed. Um, these are things that you know did lead to the. The, the growth of the, the Dutch Republic. Um, I'd say for the most part, though, a lot of these were not replicable in many other parts of the world. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the, the fact that the Dutch were small certainly helped with this. And well, you mentioned this before, homogeneity, especially among the small population helps. Moving to Britain, though, where we st really start to see a growth in you know technological change in the late 18th century, Yeah, there's been a, a whole host of different um, explanations for this, and this is certainly something that's over-explained at this point. You know, we think that, um, you know, so among the most important, say we'll, we'll say preconditions, so that's what we call it in the book, are, you know, first off, relatively limited governance. So what we mean by that is that, you know, it's certainly, you know, the, say parliament of the 18th century was still, you know, still could be very corrupt, still could certainly... Um, favor localized projects and localized spending over things that were, you know, good for the broader country. But we also see a relatively less powerful sovereign in, in England after, say, 1689, after the Glorious Revolution, possibly even after, to some degree, after the Civil Wars of the mid-17th century, where, again, it's not so much that, that that's the thing that triggered the Industrial Revolution or a subsequent growth in the 19th century. But one thing it really did you know in our view and i think the view of many in this literature is that it didn't it didn't put the brakes on it either again so you know i mentioned china as i think kind of the counter example to this you do see cases where you know the the centralized the, the emperor you know of a centralized regime really you know just stopped growth what could have been growth in its tracks um, when you have power that's much more dispersed it's much harder to do that so again you know that's one of the preconditions that we think of as being somewhat necessary you know I, i already mentioned the work of mike here before i do think that you know and this is something that's pan-european but you know having this kind of cultural change towards where you know at least among elites and then spreading throughout the population where you do have some idea that progress is both attainable and desirable it's i think it's hard to imagine modern economic growth happening without having at least some notion that that, that that's the case um again not not something that in and of itself explains it but again is one of these kind of constellation of conditions that we think matters you know so in other work moikir has done and i think he has a forthcoming 
book out that um, makes this case much more transparent, even though um, for your listeners that are interested in this literature, his 2009 book, The Enlightened Economy, it's, it's very dense, but it's amazing. It has so much, it's so jam-packed with, uh, with just knowledge of, of this period. So he makes this case that that England or Britain in particular, one thing, you know, so this enlightenment change, it was a pan-European cultural change. It's not something unique to Britain. So, you know, there's no, you know, in fact, it might have even been stronger in a place like France, where you have, you know, your Descartes, your Diderot, you know, the you know, some of the very leaders of the enlightenment are, are French. But what you have in England, according to Moikir, and I think he's you know shown this nicely, is a much larger set of skilled laborers. And this has, there's plenty of historical reasons why this was the case. So some of it goes back to guilds and things like this, but what, what he, why he claims this was important. And, you know, again, England's not the only place that has a whole lot of skilled laborers, you know, the, the big cities in say central Europe, you know, the Holy Roman empire, parts of Northern, Northern uh, Italy. Um, yeah. I'd say to a lesser extent, France, just because France, you know, really had one massive city, Paris, and then, did not have the free cities like the, you know, these other places did. Um, but one thing it did is that when you have this kind of combination of cultural change, that progress can happen and that, uh, you know, that either, you know, the, the ideas of science can then kind of creep into, uh, in, into more kind of artisanal pursuits with a, a large set of people that can then implement those change, you know, this, th these changes. And really, because really, when we look at the first industrial revolution, which is, you know, circa, say, 1750 to 1830, it's largely led by artisans, people that were skilled with their hands, you know, that were craftsmen. Um, having a, a large set of people like that mattered, um, you know, certainly for innovation. You know, there are, are plenty of other things as well. Certainly, you know, so for a place like Britain, you know, and, and Dutch as well, having access to the Atlantic, I think clearly mattered. And, it, and that's something that also, yes, it's a geographical condition, but it's also a contingent geographic condition. Having access to the Atlantic mattered very little prior to 1500, right? In fact, mm -hmm. it might've even been a detriment because really prior to 1500, almost all economic activity is happening in the Mediterranean. It's not, it's not the Atlantic that matters, at least in, you know, in Europe. Um, with the opening up of the new world, of course, you get a whole host of, of changes that end up, you know, really shifting the geographic center to, um, or sorry, the economic center to the Atlantic. Again, though, this is also something that can't explain everything. Spain and Portugal had access to the Atlantic as well. And while they had giant colonial enterprises, were not the first places to grow. So again, you know, it's, it's kind of this constellation of things. And you could also say the same, you know, another geographic feature is the North of England had a lot of coal, right? Coal ended up being important for the way that England or Britain rather ended up industrializing. That's not controversial. You know, the, the quintessential invention of the, the industrial revolution is the steam engine, which, you know, which ran on coal, coal powered engines and coal powered, energy more generally allowed for a whole host of uh changes in the way that the economy was structured you know as the term i used before allowed for economic development again though this is you know not unique to britain there are plenty of other places including the rural valley there's plenty of parts of china that had access to and it's actually i should say it's not just coal it's easy to access coal that matters um you know it's not having to dig deep 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 into mines to get it's you know relatively easy access which was the case in Northern England, again, you know, that, that's, that's something that, that mattered as well. You know, we also note in the book, you know, another thing that, that distinguishes England or Britain rather from the Dutch Republic are access to large internal markets. So Britain was just bigger and that 
to, to some degree does matter. You know, you don't certainly don't need to be the size of, say, China in the period um, to have a, a large internal market. But have, having the capacity to produce and have a market for one's goods that does not does not depend on trade with potentially hostile nations does matter for incentivizing certain types of growth, especially when we think of industrial growth, manufacturing growth, things like this. So I, in, in some, yeah, that's a lot. And there's actually, we, we mentioned a few more in the book. Um, you know, these were all seemingly for, at least we can say for the way that England industrialized, they were all necessary. Now, one thing that economists, I think, to our credit, are pretty good at are thinking about counterfactuals and think, well, well, let's say England didn't have one of these. Could it have industrialized differently? And for some of these, the jury's out. I mean, I, I think that something like politics, you know, had England had an absolutist monarchy, had, you know, Henry VIII, for instance, had 10 sons and wanted to continue a, you know, a highly autocratic uh and, you know, Catholic monarchy that had persisted, I think we might be looking at a very different place. And frankly, it might not have been Britain that that took off first. Uh, you know, so this is all to say that, you know, there was nothing predetermined that it had to happen in England by any means. You know, there, in, in fact, you know, from the benefit of hindsight, we can say on many margins, uh, Britain was Britain was lucky. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, but it's very interesting to try to understand why certain places, and you mentioned a bit of yeah. that, like particularly China, which as far as I'm aware is, is probably the oldest nation in the world, and it's huge, and places like India and the Middle East, for example, why they, for, uh, they did not uh, achieve sustained economic growth first. Right, I mean, yeah. because they they had many of those um, factors we talked about throughout the interview were yeah. there, right? Sure. Yeah. No, I mean, I think we, China is, you know, as you mentioned, you know, I mean, it was it was unified in you know the second century BC, and you know, while it's gone through some some ups and downs, for the most part, there's been even though there's been different dynasties, it's mm -hmm. largely been you know the core of it's largely been unified for almost twenty two hundred years. Um, as you, as you noted, a lot of the preconditions I noted before, you know, such as certainly access to coal, um, you know, it, obviously it's a huge coastline, not facing the Atlantic, but prior to 1500, who cares? In fact, you know, it's probably, you know, in, in many respects better to have access to, you know, the, the you know, Southeast Asia, you know, and, and spices and, and also South Asia, which, which we know there was trade between the two, certainly, you know, silk route trade, but also, um, you know, overseas trade. Mm -hmm. um, it had, uh, you know, a host of skilled artisans, for sure, much like Britain had, you know, again, one thing that we that we do emphasize here that we think has a lot of explanatory power on what the why not China case is, it, it was autocratic, the entire more or less the entire time, you know, you always have a centralized ruler that has a, an immense amount of discretion, you know, that, that you know, it's administered by this, you know, bureaucracy that that whose position you know is is highly coveted and because of this it, you know they have a lot of incentive to keep the system going um to their benefit and it and it really does allow a large amount of discretion that 
ends up being a bad thing for economic growth. You know, we can say the same thing, you know, and this is where a lot of my own research has been on, on the Middle East. You know, the Middle East is also in a situation, especially, you know, the first three, 400 years after the spread of Islam was way ahead of any part of Western Europe mm -hmm. in terms of any type of metric you would think you would think right. of as being important for economic growth. Um, yet over time, it obviously, you know, there was a reversal of fortunes between Western Europe and the Middle East. And again, this is something where autocratic power, we need to think of, I mean, this this is only, I should say, a surface level thing. We also have to have an explanation for why autocratic power persisted in, right. say, China and the Middle East and why it didn't in um, in parts of in most parts of Europe. You know, th there were certainly autocracies in Europe and there actually still are today. But um, but wider representation became a uh, much more common in Europe. And there are and to be clear, there are plenty of explanations for this. You know, and this is something that is probably at one of the core of you know, historical political economy, for instance, is trying to understand these precise questions. But I think especially when we go to China, that's one of the big inhibiting factors. And one thing that we should say is that, look, for the way that the takeoff happened in Britain, you needed that constellation of factors for it to take off the way it did. One thing we're hoping to take from this, though, is now when we think about catch-up growth, you know, why some countries were able to adopt afterwards, you don't need all of those factors. And in fact, it's impossible to have some of those factors, you know, especially something, you know, ge geography is just geography. You know, you're not going to, if you don't have coal, you don't have coal. Fortunately, you don't need coal and haven't needed coal for a very long time to adopt most of these, these, um, the, say the innovations or you know the institutions things like this you know of course coal is also something that one can import um and now even obviously in the 20th 21st century you know we're no longer a coal-based economy um so uh you know these are the types of things we we can then say all right well some of these things still seem to matter and they more so seem to matter in inhibiting growth rather than in, in accelerating takeoff you know those those two things might not be they're not always the same thing because you know what what leads to what leads to takeoff, um, you know, is, is often you know a combination of having certain certain features, and I, I think to some degree, you know, this is where culture does play a role, but also really not having other features. Um, yeah. So to get back to your question, this is also why we place institutions at at a center, a, a cent, very central to the, the broader explanations. Again, it's it's just as much, if not more, for preventing takeoff as it is for accelerating it. Mm -hmm. So one last question. What about sure. the potential drawbacks to economic growth, such as pollution, yeah. climate change, the capacity to create deadly weapons? And uh, I would like to ask you also specifically, if, do you, if you think that economic inequality might also be a drawback of economic growth or yeah. not? Sure. Uh, great questions. And, you know, this is something, again, we're, we're very cognizant of that, you know, mm -hmm. that while, while we do think on, on the whole, economic growth has been a massive, has led to massive improvements in, mm -hmm. in the, the quality of life of the average person. There are clearly drawbacks. And frankly, if we end up blowing up each other in a nuclear war, war that really is only possible due to economic growth and the kind of the scientific changes and you know, political changes that happened because of it, mm -hmm. it's all for naught. And, um, and yeah, I, we, I think more, in, in some ways, more directly, climate change is clearly the outcome of uh, you know, in industrialization and all the, you know, the various pollutants that come from that, that come from, from, uh, from engines, things like this. Um, yeah. 
you know, we'd also say, look, you know, this is something that is, it has to be considered into the calculus of how we think about economic growth and how we think about persistent economic growth. We'd also say that the solution, particularly to something like climate change, I'd say less so to something like nuclear warfare, which is very much a political economy situ um, so solution that's needed, which might may or may not have anything to do with growth. Um, even though typically when economies are growing, they're much less likely, especially when they're rich, much less, li less likely to engage in warfare. Um, when uh, we think about where the solutions for global warming and climate change are going to come from, we do think that economic growth is, is should probably will end up playing a role in this as you know. So, for instance, one of the big things by far that I, I did mention earlier that I think maybe is worth talking about just for a second here is as you get more and more people, you know, especially in places like South Asia, you know, sub-Saharan Africa that are no longer worrying about the day to day. You know, China's seen this, you know, over a billion people. Mm -hmm. move from abject poverty in our lifetime to something, you know, again, it's not rich by, you know, what we would say Western standards of rich, but something like $10,000 a year does allow for a certain level of comfort that you don't have when, when, you know, you're really on the, the edge of, of absolute disaster. As more and more of these minds are, are free to think of these solutions, you know, it's, it's much better to have 7 billion minds thinking, you know, that are at least free to come up with a moment of genius than say 2 billion or, or less. That will be one way in which, you know, alleviating the, the worst of poverty that really allowing for growth to arise can help contribute to um, uh, alleviating climate change. And also just in general, economic growth will allow for more investment in the types of technologies that frankly, we've already been seeing in the wealthiest parts of the world, you know, the US and UK, you know, for instance, are both places where we've seen kind of massive changes in the way that energy is created in the last, you know, few decades. And really without, without any, you know, and, and I think one thing that we mentioned in the book that, you know, these two things are not necessarily, these things are not necessarily inconsistent with economic growth either. It's, it's not that moving away, to, away from an oil-based economy leads to lower growth. In fact, you know, it's actually being shown to be um, quite quite the opposite. And continued economic growth should help, you know, contribute to greater advances in the types of technologies that are needed to, you know, hopefully stop it in its tracks. You know, the last thing you asked about was inequality. And on this, I mean, I think that there's two ways to think about inequality, and both are important. The first one is was kind of intra-society inequality, so inequality within Portugal, within the United States. Mm -hmm. um, and this is something that, if anything, I think the most important the, the most important reason to care about inequality beyond just the fact that, you know, we want people around us to have the nice, you know, the niceties of life is that there are massive political ramifications. When we think about the kind of the long run economic implications of, of inequality, a lot of it feeds through politics. You know, as as you get greater inequality, you get much more, you, it's much more likely that you have uh, populist leaders populist leaders that typically are not great for further growth that might also lead to greater conflict within societies and conflict in the short run for sure is, is you know, is, is bad for, for almost everyone involved. Um, so that's one of these margins on which, and it's also, I think, very clear that, you know, the pure economic growth that's, that is not constrained does clearly lead to inequality. We should also say though, you know, when, you know, 
there's a certain level of inequality that's fine. I mean, clearly, I mean, I think it's, it's quite clear that, you know, you know, purely communist systems did not work. You know, some type of incentive does matter. We should also say that, you know, that even though the degree of inequality has clearly risen in certainly since the 1970s in most parts of the West um, and had been high, say, prior to World War One, this is something where, you know, Yes, there was higher inequality, but also, you know, the, the, even the poorest people in society were much better off than than their ancestors. You know, this is true in, you know, in places, Western Europe, you know, North America, Japan, you know, other wealthy countries that, you know, even even re the relatively poor, you know, let's say the you know, people at the 10th percentile of income are significantly better off than than people at the close to the top of the distribution, say, 75, 100 years ago. Again, this doesn't necessarily justify, it, and it doesn't justify distributions of income, um, but uh, it's something to keep in mind that you know that if if certain levels of inequality um, are an outcome of this process of economic growth, maybe maybe it's worth it. Again, I'm, I'm not that that's something that's much more of a normative question than I think anything. And I think the final thing to note on this is, you know, I mentioned intra-country intra inequality. Mm -hmm. I like thinking of inequality more on a global level. Yeah. And I think that that's where something where we've actually seen less inequality over time in that we've really seen a rise in the, in, in the incomes of, say, the bottom 25% of, of the world. And on that front, I care so much more about and again, this is a, this is normative in the sense of I think people can certainly have a different opinion on this, and it's totally fine because it's not really purely it's based on my opinion, not based on it's, know, it's on more of a it's yeah. more of a philosophical slash ethical question. Exactly. Right. Yeah, and I think that you know we've seen that the the bottom part you know say quarter of the world, a large fraction of that has seen its the quality of life improve dramatically in within our lifetimes you know within say the last 40 years or so in a way that i mean frankly to me justifies most most of what we have have had with economic growth again does not justify you know climate change rise you know rising nuclear tensions things like this because those those things are um, extremely serious and actually threaten certainly threaten to undermine everything um but on the other hand when we think about something like you know, it, certainly intra-country intra inequality or, you know, and, and things like that are actually, you know, intra-country inequality and inter-country inequality are highly related. You know, when you get stuff like outshoring of jobs from wealthy countries to places like Southeast Asia mm -hmm. or, you know, China, you know, for so long, that's something that can lead to ri a rise in inequality as, uh, you know, some decently paying manufacturing jobs leave wealthier countries, but it greatly increases the quality of life, even though, you know, it, it might be from our perspective of, you know, these people are making, you know, $3 a day or, you know, five, you know maybe more, you know, more than that, you know, $2 an hour, say, you know, that, that would be something that in the U.S. would be looked at as oppressive, you know, from, uh, from a place where, you know, people in the site were making a dollar a day, now you're making a dollar an hour. That's a big difference. And I mean, I think that that's something that, Again, yeah, I, I, in in the ideal world, you know, we we move even, say, ten thousand dollars becomes an absolute minimum, you know, per capita GDP that that we view as acceptable. We're not there yet, and if we could even just get there, 
that would be such a dramatic improvement uh, relative to anything humankind has known that, again, I think that it helps really, and I think it, it justifies why certain economists and many economists are, are so concerned with growth is that we, we, we understand that there are much, it's not just about making the rich richer. In fact, it's not, for most of us, it's not about that at all. I don't, I don't really, you know, I, I understand that that might be a side side effect of growth. In fact, it almost always is, but to the extent that, you know, you're also in the process helping lift, you know, people out of the worst of poverty, then that's really what I think really matters. And when, and again, for me, at least, um, when I think of inequality, that's the type of inequality that at least I care about the most. Okay, great. So uh, the book is again, How the World Became Rich, The Historical Origins of Economic Growth. I'm leaving a link to it in the description box of this interview. And apart from the book, Dr. Rubin, would you like to tell people where they can find you and your work on the internet? <laughs> Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, certainly the book um, is available, you know, wherever you find your books, um, Amazon, of course, um, and others. Um, yeah, my website is www.jaredcrubin.com. Uh, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sure if you if you give me a look up on, on Google or your desired uh, web browser, you will you will find me. Um, yeah, besides that, you know, I'm a, again, as you mentioned, beginning of um, a, a professor of economics at Chapman University. It's in, located in Southern California, and I'm also president of an associate, the Association for the Study of Religion, Economics, and Culture, which is where my, most of my own research is located. It's at asrec.org. And if for those of you interested in that type of research, we have great conferences, great grad student events, and um, we'd love to see you all there. Okay, great. I will be leaving also links to all of that in the description box of the interview. And look, I really loved the conversation. So thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. Thank you. Thank you. It was a great conversation. Hi, guys. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you like what I'm doing, please consider supporting me on Patreon or PayPal. You will find links to it in the description box of this interview. And also, please share the interview, leave a like, and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights Learning and Development Done Differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters. Perorga Larson, Jerry Mueller, Ernst Frederick Sunda, Bernardo Seixas, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Visser, Adam Castle, Matthew Whitting, Bordarno Wolf, Tim Hollis, Eric Alenius, John Connors, Philip Force Connolly, Robert Windager, Rui Nassio, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Simon Columbus, Phil Cavana, Michael Stormir, Samuel Andreev, Francis Ford, Tiago Nunes, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cusson, Hal Herzog, Nuno Machado, Jonathan Leibrand, João Linhar, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, João Weira, Tom Hamel, Sardas France, David Sloan Wilson, Yassila Dez Araújo, Romain Roach, Diego Londonio Correa, Yannick Puntara, Dana Rosmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pablo Stazebski, Nelek Bach, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, Saima Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paul Tolentino, João Barbosa, Julian Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Douglas Fry, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pans Cortez, Ursula Litzke, Scott Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, Sunny Smith, John Wiseman, Morton, Eichland, 
Dr. Bird, Daniel Friedman, William Buckner, Mau Maria, Paulo Jorge Arnaud, Luke Cloaki, Georgius Theophanes, Chris Williamson, Peter Wolosin, David Williams, Ruth Towell, Diogo Costa, Anton Erickson, Charles Moray, Alex Shaw, Amari Martinez, Coralie Chevalier, Pedro Bonilla, Ziegler, Bangalore Atheists, Larry D. Lee Jr., Old Herringbun, Sterry, Michael Bailey, Dan Sperber, Robert Grassi, Tom Roth, DRPMD, Igor N., Jeff McMahon, Jake Zul, Barnabas Radix, Mark Campbell, Richard Bowen, Thomas Dobner, Luke Neeson and Chris Story. A special thanks to my producers Isa Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Stafiniak, Tom Van Egdam, Bernard Igni, Curtis Dixon, Benedict Mueller, Vega Giddy, Thomas Trumpel, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, June Carlo Montenegro, Robert Lewis and Alnick Ortiz, and to my executive producers Matthew Lavender, Sergio Codriana and Bogdan Canivets. Thank you for all.